This is April Mazza. And this is Christy Showman Fair. And this podcast is overdue. We're friends and coworkers, librarians, librarians. And each episode, we talk about books we're reading, things we're loving, and library advice we're giving. So, good morning, Christy. Good morning. We're back to mornings. I'm a little bit more awake. Very good. I'm glad someone is. So, I realized something recently that I've been meaning to share with our listeners. The way our podcast works, our format um, is a nifty acronym. It is. It's ball. (laughs) Because we're having a ball. We talk about books. And we ask us anything. Right. Something we're learning. And something we're loving. So it spells out ball. And it actually really helps me remember um, what I want to talk about each episode. (laughs) Yeah, I just write down ball in my notebook. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So now you know, um, if you didn't, what to expect each episode. Um, An absolute ball for sure. Um, And we do have a ball making it. So we do. um, would you like to so start off with our I would love uh, letter to. B? <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, this episode, I want, I'm going to be talking about a YA fantasy, which you'll all realize that I do tend to read a lot of fantasy, fantasy and science fiction. I'm, I'm all about speculative fiction. But um, this one, I got the recommendation from author Brittany Morris. She had a Q&A session with the Boston Public Library teen librarian a couple weeks ago that I attended and it was really fascinating. And as she was talking about her own writing, which backing up, Brittany Morse wrote Slay, which is this really fabulous sci-fi tale that um, the main character is a teen, African-American teen who creates a video game based on black culture. And then there, somebody um, hacks into it and starts to try to take over. And it is so well done. But that's not the book I'm talking about today. Talking about Brittany Morris, she um, recommended this other book. And I said, well, man, if she loved this one, I, I need to pick it up. So it is A Song of Wraiths and Ruin by Roseanne A. Brown. And it is a kind of high fantasy set in a... Um, a fantasy realm, but the the book itself is um, modeled on North and West African culture and mythology, and it's those it's all woven through the story, and it the story follows two main characters, alternating perspectives between the two. One is a, a teen boy who is traveling with his two sisters, and he's from a realm outside of the main city of this country that has been kind of oppressed by the people of the main city. And he and his sisters are trying to sneak their way into the city. Um, they have to pretend they're different people, have fit forged papers, because otherwise they would not be allowed in. But they, they need to get in because they want to find jobs so they can send money back home to their mother and grandmother. And then the other character that um, we're following is the crown princess, heir to the throne of the ruling um, the ruling organization of the ruling organization. That's a terrible way of describing it. <laughs> uh, the, the ruling class of the, of the city and the, the country. And um, she is, uh, is kind of a reluctant crown pr- princess. She, she wasn't supposed to be um, the heir, but her father and sister died in a tragic fire not that long ago. And, um, and she's now kind of struggling with trying to figure out who she is and it's all taking place on the eve or the very beginning of this big 
festival um, called Solstasia, which is happens every 50 years where this big solstice um, takes place. And it is tied into a religious kind of uh, ruling of, of spiritual realms that are ruling the, the world. So it is so, yes, so interesting and fast paced. And I, it is one of those books that I just love kind of sitting in the corner and hiding from everybody and reading. <laughs> and it's been a while since I've been able to get into something like that. Um, I'm not done yet, but I wanted to talk about it now because I'm just so excited. And I, I actually posted a, a picture of the map on our Instagram. This pod is overdue because I was so excited when I opened up the book and there was a map. I love maps yeah, in cool. fantasy so much. I just, I like to like kind of get wrap my head around what the space and this, and it really just, it, I, I'm in awe of authors when they've created a new realm and been able to think about that, the geography of that space, as well as the storyline as well. And then from a publishing perspective, I always know that a book has to be like really fabulous if there's a map in it, because uh, it yeah. costs money to hire mm-hmm. an artist to, to create a map and, and publishers do that when they really feel confident in a mm-hmm. book. So oh, um, that's a cool, interesting. Thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about that, it, like, yeah. yeah, they know they, they've, they've invested and they, mm-hmm. fr- I can't say who it was that talked about this, but a long time ago, I went to an author event um, it might've been Kristen Kishore, um, but don't quote me on that um, because she came to our, our local library m- many years ago. Um, and I think um, talked about how getting a map in your book is kind of a big deal. So I opened up the book, there was a map, I squeed, <laughs> I took a picture, <laughs> then well, I started that- reading and it's even better than I imagined. <laughs> Yay. Well, it also just so cool to have it be from, um, I think you said Western, Western and West North Af- African yes. perspective, because so many of those kinds of stories that have, you know, like royalty and castles yes. and, um, you know, even sort of the magical stuff is, you know, very like uh, Eurocentric. Absolutely. Which, and the you know, author. Fine. And, you know, some history shows that but it's all it's that's also everywhere there are like kingdoms all over the world and um and also it's fantasy so you can make up your own thing it doesn't always have to be yeah that one one Uh, the author roseanne brown was born in ghana and then immigrated um as a child um to maryland and then grew up in maryland and um i read a kind of a q a with um black authors of fantasy and science fiction recently um and a lot of the authors that were highlighted in the the story were talking about how they were inspired to write their books partly because they grew up never seeing themselves Mm -hmm. in fantasy and that is so true like if Mm -hmm. you think about the the big fantasy books even of the last 20 30 years Mm um there are like the characters are all white. And even if uh, a secondary char- character isn't white, they sometimes are kind of um, stereotypical mm-hmm. or right. or token. And mm-hmm. it's it's not okay for there not to be a, a wealth of, of experiences in fantasy and science fiction as well. Right. So I actually have been endeavoring to read a lot of, of um, fantasy and science fiction that don't feature white characters. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in this particular book um, that I've noticed is that it's not written with 
a white reader in mind. And I really appreciate that. So there are references to West African tricksters that I don't get. And so I've had to do some pausing and looking things up to see if, is this something that was created for the story or is this part of mythology? And I might be missing a ton of stuff, but Mm -hmm. that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm fine with that. And I actually enjoy that I'm reading and learning at the same time. Right. And something different. Yeah. Plus you can't see this. The (laughs) listeners can't see it, but Ooh, look at that cover. The cover is gorgeous. 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 The, um, the princess Karina is, um, she has silver hair in the story. And that's actually like how everybody knows that she's in the ruling class. And, um, so she, in the early, early chapters, she sneaks out to go play music in bars, (laughs) (laughs) but she has to hide her hair because she doesn't want anybody to know who she is. That's very cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm, I look forward to that. Um, man, this podcast is just going to make me increase my to read list even more. Oh man. I'll never catch up. (laughs) No (laughs) idea. I'll never catch up. So I read something. I actually think we could find some parallels here, although it's a very different book. I wanted to talk about Milo Imagines the World. It's a picture book by Matt de la Pena and illustrated by Christian Robinson. Oh, I love uh, yeah, both, especially like Christian Robinson. Too. Yeah, me too. I'm a huge uh, Christian Robinson fan. And they both did, as a reminder, Last Stop on Market Street, which won a Newbery um, quite a few years ago now. But in this story, uh, Milo, he's a little boy. Uh, He's riding the the subway in New York with his older sister. The book says that Milo sees the world around him and imagines the world he can't see. And I just love this idea. Uh, This is something I think everyone does. I know I do it, especially if I am like on the subway or like in a crowded city area, um, you know, where you see all different kinds of people and they're wearing like different styles and they're doing, you know, different activities. And I kind of like, like, oh, I wonder what they're up to or where they're going. And while he's on the subway, Milo is drawing in his notebook. And so you get to see, um, as the reader, you get to see his artwork, very, you know, very childlike uh, crayon drawings. But then you get to see Robinson's artwork of what's, um, what's going on around him. And I also just love that. I love Robinson's artwork. It really is speaking to like the city life too. It's very vibrant and colorful. And again, features a lot of different people, like different races, but also different ages. Um, Some people are in business suits. Some people are in like dance gear. I'm loving all of that. So Milo and his sister, they take these subway rides once a month. And Milo, he feels like... uh, he feels like a shook up soda excitement stacked up on top of worry on top of confusion on top of love to keep himself from bursting. He studies the faces around him and makes pictures of their lives. Um, And I love that too. This is just an example of the text. It's like very um, poetic almost and very descriptive. And this idea of like feeling like you're a soda, a soda bottle about to pop, um, I think it's a very familiar feeling and, and it's a good metaphor for kids mm-hmm. too. You yeah, know, absolutely. They can, something that they can picture mm-hmm. and relate to, but then also this mix of feelings like to have excitement, but also confusion and also love. 
um, I think is very relatable too, but can, that itself can be very confusing. Like, why do I, I feel good, but I feel nervous too. And what, you know, what is that all about? So, and I love that he draws and kind of imagines this world around him as kind of a coping mechanism for that, because, you know, he says like to keep himself from bursting, he's doing this imagining. So for instance, there's a woman in a wedding dress. She has a bouquet, but she also has like a little um, fluffy dog in a carrier (laughs) with her. Um, And he pictures her getting married to a man in a cathedral. And then they travel away in a hot air balloon. And then uh, another little boy about the same age as Milo um, gets on the subway with his dad and he's dressed in a suit and he's a little white boy. Uh, Milo is a black boy. Uh, but Milo imagines him living in a castle and having like a horse-drawn carriage and a gourmet chef that cuts the crusts off his sandwiches. <laughs> and so you do kind of wonder, hmm, is he, you know, imagining this boy, you know, because he's wearing a suit, because he's white, like, you know, mm-hmm. he pictures him having this very glamorous, uh, very positive, fancy life. Um, and it also kind of makes Milo think about what people think of himself you know what do people see when they see me and then Milo and his sister they get off the subway and they are entering a building that has a metal detector so now you start to get an idea of where they're going but he's really surprised to see that the boy in the suit with his dad are also going to the same place it doesn't match his assumption that he made So we find out that Milo and his sister are going to prison to visit their mother. And Milo starts to think, you know, maybe, maybe you can't really know anyone just by looking at their face because he's seen this boy is also visiting um, a loved one. And he starts to reimagine, Milo reimagines the pictures that he drew earlier. Um, He had drawn a variety of pictures, but for example, the woman in the wedding dress maybe she got married to another woman. You know, he imagined Mm. it one way that was a traditional way, but he realizes he might've been wrong about that. And just like people might be right or wrong about him. So um, I was kind of surprised when I read this book, I got it as a review copy. So I hadn't read any reviews. I hadn't Mm -hmm. um, really known anything about it just from the cover, which is fantastic. It shows Milo's face. He's got cute little glasses on. Yeah, I it love shows it. him. Yeah, it shows him. his hat. <laughs> yeah, he's got a little yellow hat on or green hat, depending on um, your vision. Um, <laughs> and, but it also shows his crayon drawings around him, mm-hmm. like the things he imagines. Um, so I just thought, like, I just thought, oh, it's going to be a cute imagination story, you know, like, not like just another one, but there are lots of imagination stories and I I knew I'd like the drawings (laughs) um but it's you know really so much more than that right it's and it's even more than just a book about an incarcerated family member which I have to say is one of the things I loved about it because we really don't have a great selection (laughs) of those kinds of books I remember when I worked in a public library this question would come up all the time it still does it comes up on our listserv um you know if you have them they're ones that are in the like the issue section. Yeah, you know, they're not stories that incorporate that as right. an aspect, but they're just about that. You Again, know, about that's, incarceration. yeah, that's why I love this. This is not a book about that at all, really. Um, but it can be used that way to help a child understand or make that tra- transition if they're mm-hmm. going to be visiting a parent. You know what that might be like for them. 
And um, so I love that about it. I think it would be, you know, it's really an excellent addition to children's literature in an area that is kind of lacking. Um, but I just really love to see it. I'd love to see it on every library shelf, public and school. I think it belongs in every library because it's really about empathy and these assumptions that we make mm -hmm. about people and that just also that things could be different from how you imagine them. So to not always look at, um, for instance, the, the, the bride, you know, you don't always look at yeah. a, a female bride and think, oh, she's getting married to a man or that, you know, um, this person, because they're dressed in a suit, um, you know, maybe has a better situation than you or, mm. or gourmet chef, at least. <laughs> what if they have tattoos and pink hair? Exactly. <laughs> I know someone like that. So did you notice any kind of connection between our books? I think just like identity and who people are and who they, they want to be is, is a connection. Um, you know, Karina, one of the main characters of of Song of Wraiths and Ruin is this crown princess, but really kind of mm. doesn't everybody, that's what everybody sees when they look at her, right? They they see her silver hair, they see her in her gowns, mm -hmm. but that's not who she feels she is. And that, you know, we don't always know a person's whole just by looking at them right. on the outside. Right. And that's what Milo learns in this book. And yeah. that this other little boy who you know, dressed in his suit, right, might appear a certain way to some people, right, um, and he might, in fact, feel a lot like Milo, like that shook up soda that's just right. ready to burst with mixed emotions. So. And Malik, the the boy who's traveling with his sisters, is you know when he's when people in the city look at him, they, they see nothing. They see you know somebody not worth worthy of their time, but really he is he's a hero. Hmm. Yeah, very cool. It's so funny how uh, like a picture book and a YA fantasy can have a connection. Similar themes. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Speaking of books, our Ask Us Anything this week actually comes from my husband, Brian. <laughs> we were talking about valuable books and I will, I will let read, uh, listeners in on a little something because I don't think my mother-in-law listens to this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> but she gave us a book that turned out to be, it's a cookbook. Um, and if you saw uh, my library shelf, uh, I should say my bookshelf on our Instagram, I'm the one that had all the cookbooks. Those are in our kitchen. Um, so she gave us this lovely looking older cookbook from that's um, Italian cooking. And I don't even know why, for some reason I I looked it up and it's actually a pretty valuable book. Um, so we're kind of debating, like, keep it or try to sell it. Um, trying to sell something is a bit of work. But it brought up the question from Brian, um, what do librarians do with books if they find out that they're valuable or, or worth some money? So we had a, a conversation about that. But I'd love to know um, what you think first, Christy. My, my first thought is you take them home and you sell them. No, that's <laughs> not true. I did not ever do that. <laughs> Um, the only ever, the only time I ever encountered this actually was, uh, when I was working in a public library and we were doing a really big weeding and shifting project, um, in anticipation of a future construction project, which did end up happening, but I was already gone from the library. Um, and as we were 
going through titles, you know, as weeding, if we found something that seemed to be, or we thought might be valuable, we'd put it aside. Then we were having our uh, foundation do searching. So using mm-hmm. a, a website like Abe Books um, to see if it something was valuable. And then, you know, because these are books that we weren't going to keep anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't um, that we had already decided that they weren't being used very frequently, or they weren't in um, condition for a public library, or they didn't really fit in the collection because we really did have to reduce for, for space. And so um, selling them was an option in order to help increase the funding for the construction project. So yeah, we sold them, but yeah, I didn't really have it much. Did you? I don't think so. I think, so we had a similar thing where our friends organization would go through books and I think they were just really well trained to sort of spot things that might Mm -hmm. be valuable. And then before each big book sale, they would work with a local bookseller who would actually come to the library and, and, look through those particular things which was great because again you know they could be they could have been sold at the book sale they would have been anyway Mm -hmm. but in this way they get a better price and of course that comes back to the library (laughs) so we're very supportive of that Um, but as far as like something in our collection I don't think we necessarily always knew right just like with this I mean our first thought was we're just going to add it to our bookshelf and maybe even try some of the recipes from it I think the thing with library books, of course, is they're marked up and they're, yeah, they're really, not... really well used. So they might not be very valuable to be. Yeah, once with. they have the the stamps and the stickers and everything, mm-hmm. that actually yeah. decreases their value. Right. But it did make me think about that recent um, hubbub <laughs> with <laughs> the Dr. Seuss books that were um, announced that they were going to be out of print and people could see right away that they were being sold for very high prices online. So I do know that some libraries were thinking like, what do we do with these? Mm -hmm. Um, They are going to be out of print. They're valuable right now, mostly because of the news story. I think if people didn't know about it and there wasn't this sort of weird (laughs) political climate around that kind of thing. And it's also the the idea of perceived um, Mm -hmm. shortage. And I think, you know, most libraries, I don't know of any that sold the books perhaps but I think most just try to do different things with them in their mm-hmm. collections um you know I think yeah, some they're... wanted to restrict them a little just so they didn't get stolen and sold yes, yeah. as opposed to we want to restrict this because of the content right um because I really think in some ways it's good to have some copies of those books around so we can look back at them and and learn from them but I definitely don't think they were worth hundreds and hundreds of no. dollars um and I don't think, you know, I don't think by um, selling them, you really gain anything. Again, especially, I mean, kids' books that are library books could not be in very good shape, especially ones that old that were probably making a face because <laughs> old <laughs> yeah, children's for, books for just, really yeah. can be gross. <laughs> yeah. But I couldn't really think of, you know, another instance like that. I think if you kind of came across something very valuable, and like you said, you weren't going to be keeping it anyway. Um, I think selling it is actually a yeah. really good idea. But then again, it depends on what kind of library you work at because I have friends who work in archives and that's like every book they have in their collection yeah, is right. valuable. And you you don't necessarily think of that. Although I do know that sometimes things get sold to other library, to other archives so that um, they have 
you know, more purchasing power. It could be that yeah. many copies or whatever, or it's a better fit at another location. So that can happen as well, which is yeah. Well, I'm uh, very a, interesting. I'm a library trustee uh, at the Danvers, the Peabody Institute Library in Danvers, uh, which for people who aren't in this area, Danvers is the town next door to Salem and was known as Salem Village when it was first founded. And so our library has an archive and they collect uh, Salem witch trial memorabilia and books and is really has kind of the, um, one of the best collections of, of first editions and original texts from that time. And so our archivist actually does buy at Mm, auctions that's very cool and so one of the things that trustees do we do is if there's an item that is going to anticipated being higher cost we have to approve the the funding beforehand if it's coming from the funds that we manage and that has happened in the time that I've been a trustee Mm. it's really interesting and we got to have a tour of the archives and um the archivist handed me a book and it was like in it had um had like the the it was the journal of the pastor who was in this area during the Salem oh, area so cool and a little eerie too yes yes like and um I'm gonna show my ignorance here because I didn't grow up here and I'm really a little rusty on some of the history but I think it was is it Ann Proctor um please go ahead yell at me out loud <laughs> if you're listening and I'm wrong but uh, she recanted her story and her her apology is, was in that book. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I shouldn't be touching this. So, you know, obviously the library is not selling that one. It is part of the collection, part of the research collection. Um, Well, I would say I did grow up here. I'm not going to remember all of them, but you could often just say goody, you know, goody anybody. (laughs) And you've named a witch apparently. So, um, Oh, that's very, very cool and interesting. So yeah, we would love to get more questions from our listeners. You can send questions to thispodisoverdue at gmail.com or you can message us on Instagram. You can follow us on Instagram, which is thispodisoverdue and you can message us there as well. Well, look, we, we learned something just now. I, I know I did, <laughs> but I would also like to know what, what you've learned lately. So um, my friends who listen to this are going to laugh because they did place a bet on whether or not I was going to talk about this on the podcast (laughs) y'all win um but my big learning thing that I cannot stop talking about this week is cicadas and specifically the brood x cicadas that are kind of popping up um on the eastern seaboard right now and even more specifically there is a fungus that is infecting some of them now Normally that wouldn't be that interesting. I mean, fungus, it's, some people think it's kind of gross. It's an insect, even grosser for others. But the thing that is fascinating that really blows my mind is that this fungus is acting like a parasite and is changing the behavior of the cicadas. So the fungus is called Massapora and it is in the ground. And as the cicadas are emerging and becoming adults, they are infected and only about 5% of the cicadas are being affected. So thankfully it's not a huge thing, but um, if it if it gets them, um, this brood that, that, that comes out every 17 years, um, if it infects them, the fungus creates an amphetamine, like actually like 
a drug Fun. and um and it 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 infects the it, it affects the the um cicada's behavior but also when they molt and become adults their butt falls off <laughs> why couldn't that have happened to me when i became right? an adult? i laughed so hard like it was like in an actual news story and they say it's butt falls off and i couldn't stop laughing but what happens is it's replaced with fungal spores and then Ew. It change it makes them um, hypersexual Whoa. and changes their mating behaviors. I was just gonna say this sounds like a great children's book, but no. I guess it's not. <laughs> I mean, the no. butt thing would be funny, but the yeah. butt thing's super funny. Um, no, it's it's yeah. Um, all the headlines are actually um, not child friendly, but <laughs> I just was really like fascinated by it because like the amphetamine is what's changing the behavior in order to make the cicadas spread the spores. Mm. So that fungus, instead of being just, you know, your stereotypical kind of like mushroom Mm -hmm. is actually acting like a parasite, which changes the behavior. And, um, what happened if it, if the fungus infects a yearly, an annual cicada, it actually, um, creates psilocybin, which is the same as psychedelic mushrooms, same kind of thing. But the thing that like, backing up and tying this back to books a little bit is um, I first got really into like this sounds bad really into uh, parasites but really fascinated by parasites back when I read Scott Westerfeld's Peeps which is a, a young adult book um, it's a vampire book but with the premise that vampirism is a parasite and the coolest thing to me aside from the, like the really fascinating story was that uh, Westf- Westerfeld wrote chapters about real parasites. So reading the book, I learned about toxoplasmosis, which is a parasite that you hear about if you have cats, but it basically changes the behavior of rats and makes them seek out where cats are. Oh. And then there's a parasite that infects um, ants and it makes the ants crawl to the top of grass um so that it'll be eaten by a cow because the parasite can only reproduce oh my cow's stomach wild that's the thing parasites are mind-blowing so i could go on forever and i'm not going to (laughs) because other people also think it's gross but i i mean if you are fascinated by parasites i'm happy to like have a whole conversation about them with you yeah, and I, think it, I think, I mean, it's gross, but fascinating, like so many things in life. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. So what are you learning about? Well, I have a, a bad habit of, uh, with journals, um, of letting them sit around for a while, <laughs> even when I really want to <laughs> Me too. Them. Um, they kind of take the back burner, but I did, I did sort of prioritize this issue of knowledge quest, which is the, um, AASL, uh, the American Association of School Librarianships publication that comes out is uh, the March, April 2021 issue. And it was dedicated to Black school librarianship. And I just was really taken with it because the cover is all Black. That really stood out to me. And then to learn that the you know the majority of the articles were written by Black school librarians and addressing different topics. And I'm going to read this little bit from the introductory article that was written by Megan Rose. She's a middle school librarian in Rye, New York. And um, it says, when this issue of Knowledge Quest arrived in your mailbox, certainly you noticed a significant difference. The cover of this issue is black. This is not a statement about the racial identity of me or the contributing writers. 
Instead, this intentional departure from the graphics for which readers are accustomed is meant to draw you in immediately. And so, like I said, it really did for me <clears throat> as well. Signaling not only its importance, but its urgency. In this issue, Adrian Almeida, Casey Boyd, Jean Darnell, Erica Long, and I share our experiences teaching in our various school libraries and bringing to bear who we are as Black women educators. And, and basically, with all these articles talking about um, EDI, so equity, mm -hmm. diversity, and inclusion, and school librarianship, is also a conversation about identity. And this happens to be written by five women, um, and they talk about their experiences and their identity and how that relates to how they work as school librarians. And each article is similar in that they do talk about their identity and their experiences, how, you know, maybe how they got their jobs, their experiences growing up, who inspired them, um, but then also gets into topics like um, advocacy. So that's uh, Casey Boyd writes about advocacy and not just of advocating for school libraries and school librarians, but also for student rights. Mm -hmm. um, and Megan Rose talks about her collection development and how EDI is for everyone, including you. Yes. Uh, so thinking, you know, kind of rethinking how you approach the topic. But then she also talked about this really interesting project she's piloting this year where she's having the fifth grade develop their own reading profiles. So they research authors and books that they already like. And then they learn about other books, maybe outside of, you know, the kinds of authors they usually read. So making these connections to their own lives, but also looking critically at their own reading choices so that they can broaden that, you know, so they can read more widely and maybe read something that they know they're going to enjoy. They know they're going to enjoy the story based on their profile, but maybe it's written by an author who isn't the same race as them or doesn't have the same life experiences as them. And I thought well, that's a really interesting thing. And it's something that I've been doing, not in such a structured way, but just, and I think we've talked about this on the show before, just trying to read outside of not necessarily my comfort zone, but just out of, you know, the, the majority of books that are published. So to, you know, read again, read authors with, um, different backgrounds than myself. Yeah. That reminds and, me of the uh, Reading Without Walls campaign that um, Jean Lun Yang did when he was um, the mm -hmm. national ambassador for children's literature, because it was the, you know, the idea that you just change one aspect, find mm -hmm. something different to read, a different genre, a different type of creator, um, a different format, and yeah. read differently and be outside of your, your norm. Right. And it's so rewarding. You know, it's not yeah. just like pushing this agenda of diversity <laughs> on anyone, including myself. It's just more, I end up really enjoying this experience and I wish that I had thought of it earlier. So that's why I love <laughs> that fifth graders, you know, they, in this school get that chance. And then by writing about it in this national publication, maybe more um, teachers and educators, uh, school librarians might um, do something similar. And it, you know, in the end, it just really benefits everyone. And I think a lot of times it's just that we're, you know, we might be going by what friends recommend to us or reviews or just, you know, oh, everyone's reading this. And again, I think if you think of what 
gets published, um, you know, if you're just kind of picking books, not thinking about who wrote them mm-hmm. um, on a kind of a deeper level, you're, you're probably going to read a book by a white person and probably a white man. And, you know, again, no offense, we're both married to them. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a, a wealth of wonderful, talented, creative, interesting um, authors and books out there and other media too, which I think, you know, they don't talk about this in the article, but I think these fifth graders in particular will also look, you know, maybe a little more critically at the movies and TV shows they watch or the games they play. Um, So yeah, I I mean, I recommend the whole, uh, that whole issue, I should say, Um, you know, it's just every article is so excellent. Every topic, you know, is a little different. So you really get you know, you could get ideas for your own classroom, but it's not limited to school librarians. Any type of librarian would get a lot out of reading this, this whole issue. So April, what are you loving these days? Well, as you mentioned earlier, it's getting kind of hot. Like this past week was very warm. I'm going to share my favorite summer meal because this weather just just does not make me want to cook. And it's not anything mind blowing (laughs) except to me. Um, It was new to a concept new to me in a very silly way, but basically hummus for dinner. So (laughs) I think of hummus as, as like a lunch thing or a snack thing. And yeah, I think about a year ago, it was definitely during COVID time. I came across a recipe. I think it was just called like hummus for dinner. And it's really barely a recipe, right? It's an assembly. There should, there <laughs> needs to be a name for this kind of um, meal preparation. But I think in this recipe, it was, you know, you get some hummus, you can make your own. Sometimes I do, but again, sometimes I don't feel like it. Tabbouleh, again, something you can make or buy cooked eggplant. So again, they, they mentioned like, you could just get this at the salad bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that is a thing, we talked about that recently at work, right. if that's still a thing or, <laughs> you know, prepared foods or cook your own, however you like to do it. And I think they also put a soft boiled egg on there. That's the part I always mm. forget to like the very end, but that'll give you another little boost of protein. And I think they did feta cheese and like pita chips. And so that's kind of the recipe. But what I love about it, in addition to like really not having to cook anything, if you really don't want to, is um, how versatile it is. So we've also put sriracha peas on it. They're like the sriracha version of wasabi peas. So they're crunchy and they have like a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of heat. Yeah, it's so good. Um, We do try to do the pita chips if, you know, because we do like something crunchy I mentioned sometimes I forget the egg, <laughs> but it is nice. If you like a soft boiled egg, it's nice because it gets all oozy in there. Um, we'll have it on a bed of lettuce. So we get extra veggies. Um, if you don't like eggplant or you don't have any, you can do something else like zucchini cucumbers. or cucumbers. Oh my gosh. We use cucumbers as another topping. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we'll like oftentimes just look in the fridge to like, oh, we have olives. Let's throw olives on there. So it's kind of like a Mediterranean Israeli pickles. Ooh, (laughs) I still haven't gotten to try those, but very exotic. I'll bring you some on Friday. (laughs) Yes, please. Anything like that. Even if you like dill pickle, you could throw that on there. So it kind of becomes a mishmash of things, trying to keep it in that Mediterranean-ish family. 
and it's, and it's a cool food too. So if you're hot, you know, you're not eating a hot meal unless you want your eggplant hot, but we've done it before where just, we already happen to have cooked eggplant, or if you don't mind grilling on a hot day, you could do it that way. You could saute it. You could put it in the oven. I actually don't mind the oven on in the summer. Um, my husband, Brian hates it. I don't know why. Cause to me, I'm like, well, you could just leave the kitchen <laughs> while something cooks <laughs> in the oven. Like I'm not stirring over a stove to me. It sounds like torture. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's my favorite summer meal. I'll that see if I can great. find a link to it, but hopefully it's just easy enough to like grab your favorite things in the prepared food section, put them all on a plate. Um, oh, drizzle a little tahini on there. If you mm. like tahini, I love tahini. Yeah. I haven't done it in a long time, but, um, cause I was gluten-free for a very, very long time, but, um, I think I'm going to re reestablish it. It was bruschetta for oh, my summer yes. dinner with, um, with good Buffalo mozzarella yeah. too, but I, oh man, summer meals. They're my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> cool. How about you? So the thing that I'm loving these days is David Tennant. And <laughs> you're not alone, <laughs> but specifically David Tennant as an audiobook narrator. Oh, I stumbled across him um, recently. I was looking for a shorter audiobook to listen to. Um, as I mentioned in our last episode, I always like panic when something's too long on audio because I tend to really only listen these days when I'm going to bed or if I'm walking the dog. And so it takes me much longer to get through a book. So I was, I look at children's books a lot when I'm searching for audiobooks, and I found Cressida Crowell's newer series, The Wizards of Once. Now, Cressida Crowell wrote uh, How to Train Your Dragon, which um, was popular when I was a children's librarian and then has become a really popular movie series too. Um, but her new, newer series, I think has three books at this point. And um, the plot really, honestly, for this, for this loving is not the, the thing. It is all about David Tennant <laughs> and his ability to narrate and his lovely Scottish accent as he tells this story. And I have actually lost big chunks of the book and had to go back and listen or just not. Sometimes I mm -hmm. don't because this is the first time in a really, really long time that I fall asleep in 10 minutes. Ooh, I nice. set a timer when I'm listening to an <laughs> audiobook, and usually I would set it for 20 minutes and then go through like two or three 20 minute chunks before mm. I would fall asleep. But now with David Tennant's voice, <laughs> I'm asleep in under 10 minutes. Oh, wow. So you think it's his voice? It's him. It's, yeah, I definitely think it's him. And it's just, he's really fun to listen to. Um, I will say though, that this is not always the best bedtime book because there are s random sound effects, oh, like explosions. Yeah. Oh no. And I, <laughs> I'll be like almost asleep and it'll be, and I wake up and <laughs> kind of great. yelp. But, um, but in general, his voice is just magical. Yeah, and I don't think I, I knew so he, happy. I don't even think I knew he narrated books. Yeah. I looked up That's and um, he also did the how to train your dragon series. Mm -hmm. So if you're into dragons, you can listen to that and chitty chitty bang bang, which huh. also is a series. Didn't know that until recently, yeah, but um, he cross. narrated the the newer versions of, um, oh. of those. Cool. So if Very you are, in, yeah. So good family read alouds too. Um, listens um, for road trips. Mm -hmm. But just be careful, you might fall asleep. I know, I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to This Podcast is Overdue with Christy and April. Bye, everyone. Happy reading.
Our podcast music was provided by thepodcasthost.com and Alidu, the podcast maker. Find your own free podcast music over at thepodcasthost.com slash free music. Um, Excuse me. Goodness, that was scary. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.